0: All right. Well, thank you so much, worship team, um, and Ben for leading us. We really appreciate you guys, and uh, and Jess, one of our elders, for praying for us this morning. We're really grateful to you, Jess. We do want to remember Larry Winter's family. You heard Jess pray for them, just so we all are on the same page. Um, Larry's been discharged from the hospital. The lymphoma has returned to his uh, neck, um, chest, and is in his bones, and the doctors have released him. Uh, to finish his days at home. Uh, They don't know how long he has. Their best guess is six months. Um, So we will pray for, continue to pray for Larry and family, as well as Todd and Amber in this process upcoming. Okay. Well, you found us on uh, a snowy cold day, but also in part three of our series called uh, A Thousand Words. And the reason we're calling this series A Thousand Words is because We had no other idea what to call it, and it seemed like a good idea. At Grace Point Church, we talk about our mission being to develop fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And kind of whatever language you use in your life, if you have come to the point where you say that I want my life to be about following Jesus, then somewhere along the line, you regularly will ask yourself, what does that look like? How do I do that? In particular, you will realize that it becomes more difficult to do as your life becomes more complex, as you introduce relationships that you didn't have before, as you have more resources than you used to have, as you have more responsibility and privilege than you had before, the question of how do I now in this phase and stage of my life continue to grow to become like Jesus becomes more and more difficult. And you have to press in against that. And what we realize is that there are Places in the scriptures where God helps us kind of figure out what does it look like to reflect my life against Christ? What does it look like to grow to be like him? And so this series of thousand words, we've all heard the phrase a picture is worth, thousand words, and we believe that Jesus gave us some pictures of faith. For the everyday, some pictures that we can look at, some word pictures that may help us figure out in different stages and phases of life if I want to become more and more like Jesus, how can I do that? And so we're looking at seven parables of Jesus that he told um, during his time on earth, and they are parables particularly about um, just kind of how we live out our faith um, in light of the things that we are facing. So, week one, we looked at the, the parable of the new wine and old wineskins, and we realized there that. God has always been in the business of drawing near to people who are far from him. Last week, we covered one of the, the most famous parables in the New Testament in the entire Bible, and I said that if you weren't even a Bible person or a church person, you would know what the parable is, and it's a parable of the Good Samaritan and... Um, that was a, a great review of some things that we knew, but also maybe a little bit of a different slant. And we said there that Jesus um, is pointing out that people who love him really love people. And people who really love people give up a right to be against them. And we, we talked through that. Now this week, this message is not um, for everybody. This message is only for people who have done one thing this morning. Okay, so if, if you have done one thing this morning, this message is for you. If you have not done this one thing, this message is not for you this morning. So this message this morning is for those who this morning, at some point along the way, in getting ready to be here this morning, took a look in the mirror. Okay, now if you did not take a look in the mirror this morning, don't tell anybody that. <laughs> This message is for for those of us who take looks in the mirror and try to figure out how much we're worth and how much we're valued and what is right or wrong with us. This is a message this morning about valuation and honor and where that comes from. And so if you've ever spent time looking both in the physical but also the proverbial mirror and wondered about your value worth Etc. This is a message for you. Now, to set this up, I've invited a friend up here with me this morning, this guy right here. This represents the empty seat. The empty seat that to me was one of the first things I looked for when I was starting school at Pequot Valley in ninth grade and went into one of the most stressful environments that you can have as a new student, and that is the middle of the day lunchroom, right? You walk into a new school and you look for an empty chair and you sure hope that you can find one quickly because you don't want to be left standing when everybody else takes their seat. And you come to realize in a hurry, and you kind of know it intuitively, that people kind of have their seats, not unlike like we have our seats here in church. Uh, I think none of us are bold enough to shoot anybody out of our seat here, but other people have been known to do that. And so in the cafeteria, it became a very stressful moment to try to figure out where is my seat, who can I sit with, and who is saving a seat, and who might kind of open up their body language to me as I walk by with my little thing of food, who might be willing to have me sit at their table because you know that where you sit and who you sit with is a public advertisement of how cool you are or how uncool you are, right? That where you sit and the table that you get invited to is really important because there are tables that have different meanings and different values in the school, right? There's the, I don't know what we call them now, but back in my day, you had the, um, I guess we had the, the jocks, right? We also had the, here's a great one, the heads, remember that? Yeah, we're not sure what that still means, but that's what we had. Um, we have people, I guess they're still kind of jocks or um, goth who's around. I'm not quite sure if that they really get their own table or not. Um, you have the preps or preppies or whatever, right? I'm um, not sure what that meant. Prep for what? I don't know. Prep for success. Prep for college. Prep, I don't know what prep was. Preparatory school. You had um, uh, some would call them maybe metalheads. Uh, I don't know what what the right term is for that but at different tables you had people who in high school it's easy to categorize people because you know everything later you realize you didn't quite know it all but you do in high school and you put people in boxes and in the cafeteria you really want to know where to where to sit and I remember finally getting a seat and honestly it wasn't a seat at a table with the greatest value and it didn't take me long to realize that that the people who opened up the seat for me were not the coolest kids in the school But to me, at that moment, they sure were because I found a seat. Now, it didn't take me long to realize that there's another table. There's actually two or three, maybe four tables that are the tables that if you make it, you get to their table. You get over there. And I would be lying to you if I said, if I I didn't tell you in my heart that there was a part of me, a big part of me, that in high school was like, I'm here, but I want to be over there. I want to be over there because that's where the cool kids hang and that's where I will know I make it if I get to their table. Anyone ever been there? Anyone remember those experiences in high school, junior high? Maybe it's just me. This story of the table and the seat and the valuation of people um, is the backstory for what Jesus tells um, A parable about this morning, and I need to tell you the backstory of how we understand ancient um, Greek culture related to seats and tables, uh, because it's important to understand that, to know what Jesus is talking about. See, in Jesus' day, um, the, the social setting of a table and a seat was so important. It was the primary way that you would tell how important somebody was before uh, television, before the internet, before you could promote yourself on social media, the um, dinner invitation to a home became the way that we could tell who the most respected people are in our culture and who the most influential people were in the culture. The dinner invitation, and not only the dinner invitation, but where you got to sit at the table in the dinner invitation was the single most... um, direct and powerful way that you had social capital given to you in the time that Jesus walked on the planet. And in fact, if you were a host um, during this time, you would would know that, that it would be important for you as a host, uh, if you want to maintain your own credibility and your own social standing, if not maintain it, just increase it a little bit, it becomes important for you when you're having a party that you invite the right people. Because if you don't invite the right people then your social standing in the community goes down. People begin to think of you a little bit less. And if you are inviting the wrong people, then here's the other complicating problem. In this culture, um, this was a culture of what we call reciprocity. It's a big word. It's a give-and-take culture. It, It is a culture in which gifts were actually never free. It's a culture in which that if I invite you to my event, you are under social obligation to invite me to your event. Sounds like a bad soap opera or something, doesn't it? Or maybe your family. I don't know what that sounds like. But it's, it's a culture in which whenever I were to ask you something, you would know there are strings attached to that. And if you accept my invitation to come to my place, then you know that you have just accepted a responsibility to invite me to your place. And so if I invite the wrong people to my place they are going to invite me to their place. And I don't know if I want to be seen with everybody. And so I need to be careful who I invite. And when you come to the party, you come to, to, to my place, you come to the host's place, after some milling around and some early small talk about the Phillies and the weather and um, you know what's happening in the Middle East and ISIS and all that, all right. so we, we have some small talk. And then we move toward seating. And you might assume that based on our interactions this week, when you came over and helped me get my car started or you helped me, my daughter, with her homework or you did something where we had some kind of give and take relationship, you might assume you're in pretty good standing with the host. And so I'm going to take a spot at the table. Before everybody gets here. I'm going to kind of take a spot at the table that's maybe a little bit closer to the host than maybe he would assign to me. But I'm just going to kind of assume and I'm going to Make, take the initiative to kind of nudge myself up closer to the host because I think I can. And because this is an honor-shame culture, if I take that spot a little closer to the host, if he really wants to move me down, that would be shameful for him to have to do that. So I'm going to lean on that shame culture, and I'm just going to take it and hope that I get the little bump in social standing by doing that. And so that sometimes it would happen. The, the The hosts would also know this, that I don't want to invite the wrong people to my party, meaning if I invite the poor people, it'll be a wasted invitation. It'll be an invitation they can't reciprocate, and it might actually even bring shame on them. And so the dinner invitation, it, it to me, seems like a terrible social network uh, innuendos to try to navigate. I like to be as open as possible in relationship where do we stand don't invite me don't give me a gift that you want strings attached to and all that i think i would blow up in this kind of a culture because this is completely opposite of that and so it's in this account it's in this kind of background an understanding of what's going on um, with dinner invitations and how social capital gets assigned that we begin to see an account of Jesus in a situation just like this, beginning to tell a parable to try to get under how people value themselves and how they value other people. And so let's look at the story that Jesus tells. Let's look at the picture that Jesus paints for us in the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 14 is where we are going to be at. Uh, The Gospel of Luke is... uh, the third book in the New Testament. And if you don't own a Bible, by the way, there's a one in the pew around you. That's our gift to you this morning. You're welcome to take that home with you. It's a third book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. Luke was a follower of Jesus. He was a doctor. His interest was to write an orderly account that people who didn't believe that Jesus was or, you know, questions about the chronology would get it through his work. He was a detailed guy. So Luke chapter 14, and we're going to begin verses 1 to 6 will be the background. That's going to set the context. I'm going to read that just to set the context. I'm not going to make many comments, and then we're going to go verses seven plus, um, section by section there, okay? So here we go. Verse one, one Sabbath when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. Now that is um, what we understand to be heart failure today. It results in kind of a bloated body, all right? So it was pretty evident you could see that someone was Bloated. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, "Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not?" But they remained silent. So, taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him away. And then he asked them, "If one of you has a son or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out?" And they had nothing to say. All right. So that's the background. That's the context. Jesus interacting, actually pushing on the Pharisees already. And so now he's at the home of the prominent Pharisee, and the guests are beginning to take their place at the table. Look at verse 7. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And then Jesus said to his host in verse 12, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. That's our text for this morning. Now, as we get into this text, you'll see a couple of things. Number one, beginning in verse seven, the guests are beginning to pick the places of honor at the table, and in light of that, Jesus begins to tell them a parable. Now, the parable, beginning in verse eight, sets the context for a wedding feast, and he says, don't take the place of honor for someone who's more important than you may show up, more distinguished than you may show up. And if they do, how embarrassing would it be for the host to come and say, hey, sorry, listen, hey, buddy, I know you thought that was an empty seat. The, I'm sorry, but the cool kids have just arrived, and you need to move down a little bit. How embarrassing would that be? And so Jesus' advice is actually makes a lot of sense. In fact, if you're not even um, a Christian or anything like that, this is actually just good moral advice, and that is when you see an empty seat, it's, rather, it's better to be invited to a better seat than to be asked to move from it. That just makes common sense. It would be good to teach our kids that, would be good to live by that, and that just kind of makes common sense. Take a lower seat and allow the host to invite you to a better seat. And the question becomes, is this Jesus' point? In other words, is Jesus here, is his interest in giving us a moral lesson? Did Jesus come to the earth so that we could learn where to sit at a wedding reception or in the cafeteria? Like, is this just moral advice? Did Jesus come as a moral teacher and is the end game here? This is such, such good advice. We want you to learn to be humble. Or is it more than that? See, at one glance, this can seem like wise advice on how to live well, on how to earn respect. Because in Jesus' story in verses 8 to 10, The individual is asked to move to a higher seat, or at least the potential exists that you could get asked to move to a higher seat. And it's almost like Jesus is saying, I know what we all want. You all want to be honored in the midst of other people. So if you want to be honored by other people, let me tell you how to get what you want. Rather than push around and try to grab the seat, have the seat given to you by sh- pretending at least to be humble, and then you can be honored in the midst of other people. And after all, that's what you want, and I'm here to give you what you want. And so is this what Jesus is saying? Is he just giving us a tool to get what we really want anyway, to find a way to sit at the table you know, with the cool kids in our life? And I don't think it is. I don't think Jesus came here to give us moral directives on how to figure out how to find favor in other people's eyes. Uh, so I think what Jesus is doing here is fundamentally different. I think what he is doing here is setting upside down the entire world of the, the Greek and Roman world at the time that, viewed, um, how, that, that used this table and seat um, world to establish value. I think he's flipping that completely upside down. I don't think he is just saying, here's a way to get what you really want. Pretend to be humble, at least have somebody invite you. Uh, I think what he's saying is this, and this, this to me is so important. Don't use this seat to try to find honor for yourself. Don't use this seat to fight for honor for yourself. This seat is meant... To give honor to others, this seat is not meant for you to fight for. This seat is an opportunity for you to give to others what you really wish you had yourself. He's turning on its head the very way that we find value in the first place, because our draw, our interest in verse seven, we see that these people are fighting for the best seat. They want the honor that comes with the most important people in the room. And Jesus is saying, you're seeing the seat the wrong way. You're seeing this the wrong way. This is not your opportunity to grab honor for yourself. It is your opportunity to use this to give honor to somebody else. And the only way this will work is if The only way this works, that we are able to give honor to somebody else, is if we believe that we already have found honor somewhere else. It's a big statement. In other words, look at verse 10. When you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he can say to you, move to a better place, and then you'll be honored in the presence of all of your fellow guests. Verse 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted what Jesus is saying I believe is that God is changing the way that we find valuation with one another he's setting it on its head and here's what I think he's saying that in Jesus world God's estimation of you is what matters not the social credentials given by family friends wealth or power that the only way, the only way that I can use this seat to honor you is if I already know that God has esteemed me and valued me above what anyone can value me. The only way that I can use this seat as a way not to grab honor for me but to give honor to you is that I already know that I have been honored and I find a place of rest in God's estimation, not in mine. That he who humbles himself will be exalted and he who exalts himself will be humbled. And so if I'm truly humbled before God, here's where Jesus pushes it out in verses 12 down to 14. And he gives what we read earlier. He gives this directive next. He says, rather than doing this, right, rather than having all the people at your wedding feast and all the people at the, the table so that you can be honored and you can build this system in which you honor one another and you fight for the approval of man around you, rather than fight for that, you should go out and invite the poor to your table. You should go out and invite the disenfranchised into your life. You should go out and invite the people who can bring no value to you to be near you. And the, the hosts are like, whoa. But that doesn't, that doesn't do anything. Like, they won't say yes because they have to reciprocate. And that doesn't help me. In fact, that actually brings me down. Because what I value the most is what people will think around me. And Jesus says, what you need to do is bring in people who this world might estimate have no value whatsoever. And then he makes a statement at the end in verse 14. And you will be blessed, although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. In other words, God is seeing what you're doing. God is aware of what you're doing that the estimation of you, the estimation of me, is not based on being able to sit on the seat and find my spot finally near the host where someone thinks I'm important, where someone thinks I'm finally beautiful enough, where, where someone finally thinks that I've worked hard enough and built my business to be great. Where someone finally thinks my family is successful. Where someone finally thinks that my parenting is worthwhile. Where someone finally wants to date me. Where someone finally wants to marry me. Where somebody finally respects, appreciates me for being me. This is that seat of valuation, which we will fight for, to have, and then once we have it, we will fight to hold it. We will fight for our seat around the table of importance among one another. And in so doing, we become a slave to it, don't we? Because it never ends. Because we're never beautiful enough or strong enough or powerful enough, aren't we? We're never savvy enough, we're never consistent enough We're never quite good enough to keep this spot all the time. And Jesus says, hey, there's a spot there at the table, absolutely. You're looking at it the wrong way. This spot is not for you to fight for. This spot is for you to use to honor somebody with, with humility. To say, you know what, let me honor you. I saw what you did. Take the seat. I know you're not perfect, but come on. I saw the way you cared for your family. Come on, come on, grab a seat. Sit right near the host, come on. It doesn't matter if it's for me or not. I want you to be a part of this. Come on. I have an opportunity to honor you, and I want to do it. I'm not thinking about me because I know that my valuation is not set by the people around me, but is set by God. And Jesus is setting completely on its end the way that we see ourselves when we look in the mirror. And he's saying, God's estimation of you is not based on your family, your friends, your wealth, your power, anything else. And how freeing would it be, how freeing would it be to live with this open seat in our lives? How freeing would it be to be able to live and say, you know what? I don't need to fight to find my spot. I don't need my, don't laugh at this, my hair to be perfect. I told you not to laugh at that. I I don't need, I don't need to work so hard to impress my friends at school. I don't need that. What they want is they want a seat around my table and I want a seat at their table and so we have to be sure to invite one another and honor one another so that we all feel good about ourselves and Jesus is saying here, listen, listen, Use this opportunity to serve other people. People are always going to want a seat at the table of importance. They're always going to want a seat. And you have an opportunity. You have an opportunity to honor the people with humility around you. So here's some so what questions and statements. Here we go. We always tend to honor what we think will bring us honor. Right? We have a tendency to honor what we think will bring us honor. Uh, by that I mean if I think in my world that... Um, working extra hard and building my business to X level of success will bring me honor among people I care about, you better believe I'm going to do that. right? If I think that raising my kids in a particular way and making sure that we only go on these websites or only listen to this music or only teach them this, then you better believe that I'm going to do that because I want honor around you. And if I think that in my hobbies I want to reach a certain level of proficiency, I want to be good at doing something on the side, and I have other people around me who do that with me, and I want to reach a certain level of proficiency with them that I'm going to honor that thing in my life. And we just tend to honor or give time to that thing, which we think will kind of give back to us what will make us look the best. For some of you, it's some of us, it's grandkids or children or, or parenting or whatever it might be. We tend to honor that which will honor us. And here's what Jesus is saying <clears throat> humility tends to honor what will bring others honor. And humility flips that on its head. And humility says, I'm going to honor the thing. I'm going to give time to that which will bring other people honor. So instead of me worrying so much about what do I need to do to find that place at the cool kid's table, humility says, what do I need to do to make sure that the people around me know how much I honor them and know how much their God values them? Because I already do. Humility says, rather than me chasing this, rather than me chasing this this seat of importance, what can I do? To, to put other people in the seat and say, listen, here's how, here's how important you are. The God of the universe made you. He values you. He cared for you. He created you. Don't get caught up in this little rat race of trying to figure out who's who. And let me say something about humility just quickly because it's a key tenet of this parable and it's important for us. And you may have heard me say this before. Uh, and, well, I have said it before. Hopefully, you've heard it. That humility. One of the best definitions I've heard is that humility is aggressive service for God. I mean, I probably keep saying that for as long as I live, but humility is aggressive service for God, meaning humility is not about passivity, weakness, or anything like that, but humility is saying I'm going to intentionally put other people in front of me. I'm going to intentionally put God's interest in front of mine. That takes aggression. It takes uh, intentionality. It takes regular work because our will is so strong that it takes something stronger to get on top of it. You know, Philippians 2.8 talks about Jesus, and that Philippians 2.1-11 passage is so powerful in talking about Jesus' model for us and how we're to model after him. And in Philippians 2.8 it talks about that in his humility he became humble to the point of taking on the cross. And that humility required of him that he was aggressive in his service for God, that despite his own pushbacks, his own desires not to go to the cross, he still went anyway, and that was an incredibly humble act to go through Jerusalem with the palm branches and then to come back and go through the trial and go through a city where he knew that he was going to be tortured and still do it. It took great humility to be intentional in his service to God. And so when I talk about humility here, I'm not talking about just make sure that you're the one who talks the least. Sometimes humility is you're the one who talks the most with the most passion. Humility is not the person who just doesn't have an opinion, but someone who has an informed godly opinion who gets after it with their family and with their children and with their spouse. Humility is not the person who just sits there and lets things happen around them. Humility is the person who says, this is what I believe God wants and we're going to move this direction because it is in his best interest, not mine, but in his, and is willing passionately to fight for a cause. Don't mistake that. That is humility to fight not for your own cause, but for something greater than yours, and that is God's cause. And so humility says, I'm going to take the opportunity to put other people in the seat, not myself. And that requires intentionality, and that requires passion, that requires emotion, that requires a direct approach to say, what do I need to do to put other people in the seat of honor and to recognize that my God has already valued me? And I don't need to try to find this spot at the cool kids' table. A couple of questions for us to try to nail this down for us as we kind of process this finally. That is this. Three questions that I want to give to you. As we think about honor and how do we do this. Number one, what would you say, what would I say is the most important thing for me today? We're talking about just today. Because we have to think about what does honor look like? Okay, What does that look like? Honor becomes the thing that you and I most honor is the thing that we think is most important in today. Like if everything else failed around you today, if everything else failed, you would want to say, okay, if everything else fails, this is what I want to be sure to accomplish today. This is the way I want to be sure to carry myself today. This is the most important thing about my day today. Here's what I want someone to understand today about me or about my faith or about my relationship with them. This is the most important thing about today. Okay, that becomes kind of your guiding principle. And we tend to honor what we think will bring us the most honor. And so the question in humility is, what is it that I need to put in my day that becomes the most important thing for me to honor today? In other words, if my day becomes, if I subtly make that change and say, I want to honor God and others with my day, not just look in the mirror and say, man, I hope, I hope today, that the people around me are impressed with who I am. This leads to the second question. Who do I want to be sure to impress today? Who do I want to be sure to impress today? This is a corollary question, a follow-up. This is subtle but powerful. We all looked at the mirror this morning, there's a reason for that. It's a good thing. I don't encourage no mirror looking. Okay, that might, might go badly for us. I encourage that. But the question is, who do I want to impress today, right? Who is it that I want to Impress? Who is it that I care about? Whose opinion do I care about? You know, why is it that I wore this shirt or this blouse or you know these pants or this skirt today? You know, yeah, maybe it's just me. Maybe it looks great. Good, wear it. When I head to work, who is it that I want to impress today? You know, when I head back to school. Who is it that I want to impress today? When I'm with my kids, who is it that I want to impress today? And to what end? To what end? It's a great question to ask. We don't often ask it, and we sometimes think we're above it, but we're we're truthfully not. We still have this seat, this empty seat, kind of coming through life and coming back over and over again to us. We want to be able to find a spot where we feel honored by people, where we feel like, I finally belong. And Jesus says, don't try to grab for the seat. Use this as an opportunity to honor other people. And finally, this question here, who do I need to serve today? Who do I need to serve today? One of the most practical things that you and I can do to try to fight this tendency to want to grab honor for ourselves is take that opportunity and give it to other people. One of the most practical ways that you and I can fight this desire to impress other people is to say, you know what, who do I need to serve today? Because that question alone takes the focus away from me and puts it out on you. And that is so powerful. Can you imagine what that would be like? Can you just imagine for a minute what it would be like for you and for me if we were so free when we looked in the mirror, if we were so free that we actually believed that we did not need the approval of other people over the approval of God? Can you imagine how freeing that would be to go to work with still the same energy and passion that you have, but because God values you, not in order that other people will value you. Can you imagine what it would be like to, to, to get yourself all dressed up, not because you're trying to impress anybody, but because you want to, because it's fun, because it's engaging, because you are reflecting as an image bearer of God the beauty that he has made you to be? Can you imagine the difference that would be in your life if you weren't anymore chasing the seat of honor, chasing the approval, chasing the impression of other people, chasing the cool spot at the table? And you instead said, you know what? This is empty. This is empty, and this, this results in servitude, and all I'm going to do for the rest of my life is serve other people around me and their impressions of me. And what if you were made for more than that? And what if Jesus, when he comes to this house of the Pharisee, this prominent Pharisee, And tells this parable and says, don't grab honor for yourself. Rather, go out and invite the people that no one else would invite. Go out and invite the people who can't pay you back. Go out and invite the people who others may look at you and say, really, you're hanging out with those people? You're serving them? They're coming to your banquet? I'm sorry, but we can't have you over to our place anymore. Go invite them. Go engage with them. Not so that you will finally get a seat at the cool kids' table, but so that you will be able to live your life how God wants you to. To say, in humility, I'm going to seek other people's honor because I'm comfortable and confident and I know that my God values me and I don't need the people around me to tell me that. I'm going to use the opportunities I have to serve the people around me. What does it look like to become a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ? Here's one principle that Jesus gives to us here. In humility, in humility, we honor those around us and we honor the God that we serve rather than to seek to grab the honor for ourselves. Will you pray with me? Our good God and heavenly Father, I pray for us as men and women and boys and girls here this morning, that you would help us as we look in the mirror, as we look at our value, our worth, as we look at those that we hang out with and those that we maybe would prefer not to be around, those whom we try to impress as we try to look good around. I pray that you would help us to give up that life that ends nowhere good, but only results in greater servitude and greater slavery to people's opinions around us. This is deep for some of us. This is a lifetime for some of us where we have yet really to rest in the fact that we are made in your image. We have yet to rest in your valuation of us. Father, I pray this morning that you would give us the courage to serve others and take the first step in a very practical way to look for someone at work, at school, in our family, in our neighborhood who's overlooked, who's neglected, who other people don't value, and take a moment to talk to them, to invite them, to notice them, to engage them. And in so doing, I pray that you would begin to break that hard shell around us, that we can see your image in everyone that you have made. Father, we thank you that you are a good, strong, caring God who can move us and change us and grow us no matter what. I pray that you'd give us the courage to do what we know we need to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.